0: Now it has a 1994 copyright on it, so I know that's not the original copyright. And it's a, uh, uh, he's rewritten the Christmas, Night Before Christmas poem to include a gospel message, and then it's an explanation of the gospel. So this is a great track to grab 10, 20 of them, stick them with Christmas cards when you put them out. Uh, take them with you. You know, tracks are a great thing. I, I, I haven't been in the practice lately, but I used to always carry a handful of Matter of Life and Death, some other tracks. Leave a restaurant, leave a tip, leave a good tip. If you don't leave a good tip, don't leave a track. <laughs> if you're going to give them a track about grace, you better manifest grace. So... Just leave them wh- wherever. It's amazing the stories we used to get at TNP at Baraka about where people got onto tape. Some guy found uh, the plan of God floating around in the bottom of a Swedish tanker in the uh, Baltic Sea. And uh, somebody else wrote in one time, and they had uh, uh, they had been at the dump, and they had found boxes of these tapes and they just picked them up and started listening to them and uh, they got saved and another story there was a guy who bought a box kind of a pig in the poke kind of thing at an auction didn't know what was in it. it just had all kinds of stuff in it paid 10 bucks for it and a guy who had whose father had gotten tapes from baraka put put the tapes on cassette for his son so they were just blank. There wasn't any label on there. They didn't know who the speaker was or anything. Sent them to his son. His son had all these cassettes. And when he got out of the service, he was stationed up in Alaska. He just, you know, left them all there. And they ended up in a storage garage and eventually in an auction 15 years later. And some guy got about 100 tapes and listened to them over and over and over. Had no idea who the speaker was. But the guy's name was on this stuff, the, the, the serviceman who had, had the tapes. And so, lo and behold, after about, I think after about 10 or 15 years of the guy listening to these 100 tapes over and over again, along comes the internet. Pulls up a people search, types in the name, finds the guy in Michigan 20 years later or something. Who is this guy on the tape? Man, this is the greatest stuff I ever heard. Got saved. I mean, it's just remarkable how the Lord uses these things to bring people to himself and to get the gospel to them. So that's a... Great thing to use. This I recall to mind, and therefore have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and He shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself in the Lord, and He will give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in Him... And He will bring it to pass. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. What time I am afraid, I will trust in Thee. In God, I will praise His Word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear what man can do to me. For the Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Let's, before we begin our study, let's make sure we're in fellowship. A few moments of silent prayer, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we say, thank you so much that we have the light of your word to, to illuminate our thinking that there are so many Uh, realities beyond our experience, beyond our ability to develop or learn about just on the basis of our own reason and intellect, that your word has told us of these things, specifically the angels and demons and the entire angelic conflict. Now, Father, as we continue our study about spiritual warfare and its relationship to our spiritual life, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and that we can uh, be challenged by them and that they would transform our thinking about reality. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to James chapter 4, verse 7. James chapter 4, verse 7. We continue our study of James, how to handle problems, how to face adversity in life. And in James chapter 4, James comes down very hard on this congregation on his readers because they have been living in carnality, they have departed, in the words of the Apostle John in Revelation, their first love, and they are in reversionism, which we have studied. And now he is calling them to turn around, to recover from their carnality and turn back to the Lord, and this is encapsulated or summarized in the 10 imperatives that you find in these verses from James 4 7 through 10. The subject is introduced through the Old Testament quote in verse 6. God is opposed, or that is, God is antagonistic to, he makes war against the arrogant, but he gives grace to the humble. So the issue in the believer's life is humility. It starts with the idea of authority. Verse 7, Submit therefore to God, recognition that God as sovereign is the true authority in our life. The word here, "hopatasso," is the present, or the eras passive imperative, indicates the priority and the urgency of the action for the reversionistic or carnal believer to turn around, to... Get back in fellowship with the Lord under the filling of the Holy Spirit because only then can we have real protection in life from the adversity of life. Now we have a new diagram here to challenge us with understanding the dynamics of problem solving. The soul fortress. This inside here, this glowing object is you. That's your soul all of its dynamics, the self-consciousness, emotion, volition, mentality, and conscience. Now, the entryway into the soul fortress is use of 1 John 1.9, confession of sin. When you are inside the fortress, that's where you are filled with the Spirit. That's why we have the foundation blocks as the filling of the Spirit. Now, one of the things that uh, we did, talking with Gail about this as we worked out this diagram, is to illustrate spiritual growth dynamically rather than in its logical progression. Because we don't always grow in a logical order. You come to Bible class one night and the subject might be occupation with Christ. So you learn some doctrine about occupation with Christ even though you're a baby believer. The next time you come, the subject might be grace orientation, a little more basic. So you begin to build that block. So we put those blocks up one at a time. Now, once you reach spiritual maturity, that's when you've got the whole fortress there of doctrine that you can utilize to defend you. See, this is the point of a fortress. It is a defense concept. One of the greatest defense uh, battles in History, of course, took place—the 13 days of glory down outside of San Antonio to at the Battle of the Alamo. Every good Texan knows that story. But you can't win a battle on defense alone. That's what um, Robert E. Lee learned. That's why he invaded the North at two different occasions during the Civil War. You have to have a defensive posture and an offensive posture. <coughs> but the believer is told to go on the defense. Who goes on the offense? The Lord. David said it best, the battle is the Lord. You see the tremendous illustration of what took place when the Israelites were leaving Egypt. On their way to Mount Sinai, they ran into a a bunch of uh, sort of uh, Bedouin brigands called the Amalekites. And they engaged in a huge battle just on the plain not too far from Mount Sinai. And there, the the issue was going to be made clear that problems in life had to be solved by the grace of God relying on His power alone. So, to illustrate this, God had Moses stand there up on the hill where the whole army could see him. And as long as his arms were outstretched and he could hold them up, then the Israelites were winning. But if he began to drop his arms, then the Israelites began to lose. So he got Aaron on one side and Hur on the other side and propped his arms up. And that was an illustration of his complete reliance upon the Lord. It didn't happen. One thing we learned from that is that victory did not happen instantaneously. It took a long time for them to win, but they did win. But apparently it took... So long that it did tire out Moses standing there and he had to have a little assistance. But the issue in that whole battle is defense. And Moses said it too. The battle is the Lord's. It's not our battle. He is the one who engages the enemy in offensive action. The believer's responsibility is to maintain a defensive posture by putting on the armor of God. That's the metaphor that Paul uses in Ephesians 6, and we will get there eventually. And the believer takes, it up, takes up his position by using the armor of God, putting on the fort, fortification of Bible doctrine to defend the soul against the onslaughts of the three enemies in the believer's life. Now, we have seen that the Bible tells us that there are three enemies. The first is Satan, the devil... The second is the world system, the cosmos, which is a way of thinking. And the third is the flesh, the world, the flesh, and the devil, as it's usually listed. The flesh, which is the sin nature. Now, the sin nature is the only one of these three enemies that operates inside the believer. That is the traitor within our our body, The world is an external system, a way of thinking, and Satan, of course, is, and all of his demons operate in a spirit realm. They are not observable to us, to our senses. We are not aware of their presence. They are, they are immaterial. They are creatures, uh, who masquerade as angels of light because their basic component, I think, of angelic bodies is light. So they are in an unseen realm. So the only way, and we're going to come back and have to spend some time on this, but the only way we know anything about Satan and demons is what the Word of God tells us. We do not intuitively know what is satanic, what is demonic, and what is not. Now, there's a lot of arrogant people who think that because they have liver quiver, their glands get stirred, or they... Or whatever that they somehow know that Satan or demons are present. And therefore, they uh, go out and they run into somebody that has a lot of problems, and they immediately jump to the conclusion that it must be demonic, it must be demon possession. And one of the problems with this that we'll come back to as we see, I'm sort of introducing a lot of the concepts tonight, is that the sin nature that indwells every single believer... Every single human being, including every believer, is qualitatively evil. There's no person in this room whose sin nature is any less evil than anyone else's. That is the nature of sin. The sin nature of Satan is no more evil than your sin nature. No more potentially evil. The difference is that as the greatest creature that came from the hand of God in terms of physical beauty, in terms of intelligence, in terms of uh, talent, in terms of uh, every category of ability that you can think of, none surpass Lucifer. He was the greatest to come from the hand of God. And so his ability is unsurpassed so he can fulfill all of the lusts of his, his sin nature to a far greater degree than any other creature but even so he is still a creature and he is still limited by the sovereignty of God and by his own creaturely in, uh, limitations. What we learn is that just because something is evil does not necess- necessitate that it's necessarily demonic. the reason I say that is everybody uh, human beings are intensely arrogant and we all think that golly if somebody's going to be as evil as an Adolf Hitler, or an Ayatollah Khomeini, or a Saddam Hussein, that they must, by definition, be demon-possessed because how could any human being really be that evil? I mean, that's the underlying assumption in in the question, that we assume somebody who uh, gets into the occult and, and does all the kinds of horrible things that Hitler did, that no human being could be that evil just on their own. Yes, wake up. We are all capable of that. But for the grace of God, every single one of us could be that evil and that wicked because that is how horrible the sin nature is. So, James tells us that the solution to recovery from control of the sin nature, first of all, starts with authority orientation. Submit, therefore, to God. And then he says in the very next verse, "...and..." Resist the devil. Now the conjunction is left out of the English translation, but in the original Greek, you have this phrase, which is the uh, the conjunction de, which here should be translated and, and it shows that there is a connection between the second imperative and the first. They're two sides of the same coin. You have to submit to God, you have to resist the devil. Remember, he just got through talking about the fact that friendship with the cosmos is hostility toward God, and whoever wishes to be a friend of the cosmos makes himself an enemy of God. So you only have these two options. On the one hand, there is God, and on the other hand, there is Satan. God is the God of light, We talk about the Holy Spirit who indwells every single believer. He operates on the principle of grace. And Satan operates on the principle of arrogance, morality, religion. He has many different ploys that he uses. His is called the kingdom of darkness. He emphasizes or appeals to our sin nature. So when we are walking according to the flesh we are fulfilling uh, Satan's goal. His world system is called cosmic thinking from the Greek word kosmos, which indicates that it is an orderly, systematic arrangement, and it operates on two basic principles. One is arrogance, that which is hostile to God and lifts itself up against God, and uh, antagonism to anything divine. So arrogance is a positive thing in terms of asserting our own Human self-will and human ability and antagonism to God uh, resists anything that supports Scripture. It's interesting how this works. I don't know how many of you uh, watched this show that was on PBS last night on Apocalypse. Frontline did it. It was fairly well done as things of that nature go. But once again, I was impressed by the fact that the unbeliever who operates, or even the believer possibly that does not operate on a principle of the exclusivity of Scripture. That Scripture is what it claims to be. That Scripture is the very Word of God and therefore is infallible and inerrant. They always give it lip service. There's all this God talk, but ultimately they undercut the authority of Scripture. And so whenever they were talking about uh, things related to prophecy and they started talking about Daniel, of course they late date Daniel into the first or second century, so... All of Daniel's prophecies are no longer prophecies. They're history, written after the fact, claiming to be prophecy. And there's all this, this uh, pressure to just, you just can't let God truly speak to man. God really doesn't have real objective existence where he can uh, tell exactly what will happen in human history because that, of course, would imply that God is what? that God is in control of human history. And, uh, of course, we can't stand that. So, in our arrogance, we have to uh, reinterpret the Scriptures because man is inherently antagonistic to everything that is God's. So, we have to learn to submit to God and resist the devil. And there we have a wonderful promise that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. And this indicates that this is an automatic thing. This is not resist the devil. And you will gradually over the next uh, five or six years see the devil flee from you. This is not a process. This is instant. But there's a lot of confusion today about this whole concept of what the devil can do and what demons can do to believers. And all of this, and we don't have, we're not going to get into this in detail tonight. I want to wait and tackle all of this in one night. But so much of this is based on empirical evidence. One of the reasons that Tommy and I wrote our book, Overrun by Demons, is because there are people, in fact, when I was at ETS last week, there was another book written by a professor at Biola, which uh, has always been a fairly conservative, biblically sound school out in Los Angeles. Biola stands for the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, founded in the late 19th century by Ruminatori. E. Torrey. Yet, one of their professors, has a, just like another of their professors and a professor at um, at Moody Bible Institute, have published books arguing that Christians can be demon-possessed. And this just confuses a lot of believers. And uh, the classic example of how this happened was with a great man who was a professor at Dallas Seminary by the name of Merrill Unger. And back in the 1950s, Dr. Unger, who was the head of the Old Testament Department at Dallas Seminary, wrote a book called Biblical Demonology where he argued very well and very biblically, sound arguments, why Christians could not be demon-possessed. And he received hundreds of hundreds of letters from missionaries out on the, in deep, darkest Africa, South America, or Asia, with all of their experiences with people they believed were Christians who they believed were demon-possessed. And so, not on the basis of evidence extracted from Scripture. See, that's why we go over exegesis and translation over and over again. We have to let the Bible speak for itself. And the psalmist wrote, in thy light, in other words, in terms of thy revelation, O Lord, we see light. That has to be our presupposition. But Unger yielded to the pressure, and he wrote a book called Demons in the World Today. And... um, he caved in on it and argued changed his position that Christians could be demon-possessed. But for the most part, conservatives have always taught that on the basis of the Scripture, Christians cannot be demon-possessed. And so we're going to have to take a look at these arguments and what demon-possession is and what demon-influence is and why the Scripture is very specific on this command to resist the devil and its implications. But in order to really understand this in light of what's going on today... And in light of the kind of screwy stuff that you're going to hear and some of you have heard, I want to lay the groundwork very carefully. And so you, we just don't want to jump in at uh, 6 or seven in the argument and start handling it because somebody's going to start raising questions. Well, what about this and what about that? So we have to lay things out in a very systematic and orderly manner. Today we live in an age when very few people want sound doctrine. They learn from all kinds of things. and In fact, the fastest growing market of Christian literature today is in the realm of fiction. And I think that's good. Jesus used a lot of fiction when he was teaching. He used the parables which were fiction. And uh, fiction can communicate a lot of truth. Don't make the mistake if so many... You know, I just get so irritated. Because uh, there's a guy by the name of Frank Peretti. Some of you may have seen his books. Uh, Piercing the Darkness, and I forget what some of the others were. They came out in the late 80s, and they're big bestsellers. They're fictional stories that have to do with angels and demons. And, uh, the, trying to, and his goal is good. It's, it's a worthy goal. He wants to help people understand the spiritual dynamics that are going on behind the scene. But in so doing, in telling his fictional story, he is teaching doctrinal concepts. And I'm telling you, I talked with graduate students in theology at Dallas Seminary ten years ago when those books came out who read those books and walked away going, well, what's wrong with that? You know, I always just, just learned that, that we should pray more. And I say, well, okay, you were encouraged to pray. You understand Frank Peretti's doctrine of prayer. His doctrine of prayer say angels, the holy angels, the elect angels can't do anything unless believers pray. The more you pray, the more they're strengthened. It's like blowing up a big balloon. You know, the more you pray, the bigger and stronger the holy angels become. And if you stop praying, then they lose their power and they shrink down until they, that's, that's, that has more to do with Eastern mysticism than it does with biblical Christianity. Uh, there are a whole number of other problems with his theological orientation. And yet all of these things are taught and they, and, you, and the danger with fiction is that your guard usually isn't up. You're reading fiction. So you just read the story, but in the meantime, it's very subtle, and this false doctrine comes in. And, of course, Frank Peretti comes out of a uh, Christian tradition that bases its whole theology on uh, experience, and he communicates that very clearly through his fictional works, and he's written two or three of them. But the danger is that people do not learn to think critically. You, as a believer, need to think critically about everything you read, everything you see. You go to the movies. And that's one of the things that I try to emphasize in my ministry. One of the things that we talked about this last week at the ETS conference, two or three of us were talking and we were amazed at how many people that we knew and that we had seen in various congregations like this congregation who had spent years, decades in some cases, under sound biblical teaching. And then for some reason, good, bad, indifferent, they leave that congregation and they go to some other church and how quickly they buy into a really screwed up theological framework. Haven't they learned? Don't they, haven't they really appropriated what was being taught from the pulpit? Didn't they, didn't they embrace that and understand it? Or were they just filling up their doctrinal notebooks and because they had all these points down on the page, they thought they understood it? And this is the deception. You have to embrace the truth. You have to make it yours. This is why I see, I've seen men who were at Dallas Seminary who, who believe the doctrinal statement and then they go off in three or four years out of seminary, they're caught up in all kinds of odd doctrinal positions because they never really understood what they said they affirmed. It's not just a matter of reading a doctrinal statement and saying, oh yeah, I believe that. That's fine and good. But is this your conviction? Is this the view that you embrace and live out in your life? Not just that, oh, I think this is nice. This is a danger we have in our society is that we can uh, sort of uh, fragment our thinking so that we compartmentalize certain things. Oh, well, I go to church and I learn about the Trinity and the hypostatic union and I learn about Christ dying as a substitute for my sins and soul fortress, problem-solving, all of that, and that's here. And then I go to work and I, I, I operate on a totally different basis. We haven't embraced what we're learning in Bible class so that it affects the way we handle and do everything in the job and everything in our families and everything in our relationships. So we just sort of fragment our thinking And compartmentalize doctrine off into this one room and then the rest of the week we're operating in the other rooms. Well eventually what's going to happen is that will produce an internal collapse in your life. It may not be next week, it may not be next year, but five or ten years down the road, if you have not embraced this and radically revolutionized your thinking on the basis of doctrine, then you will reap the consequences. And it will destroy your life and you'll be one of the most miserable people around. You'll start bouncing from church to church and wonder why God hates you so much. And I've seen that happen time and time again. So we have to make it a point to pursue God with diligence. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So we started off last week just introducing the whole concept of the prehistoric angelic conflict And the angelic rebellion. Point number one. I just want to review those points very rapidly. We got down to about point three. In point one we saw that angels were created in eternity past. They were created perfect and sinless. And there is no relationship between the angels. Each angel is created individually. Not like the human race where there is a constitutional unity. We are all one in Adam. Every human being is genetically linked. There is no genetic link among the angels. Each one is distinct. Angels were called sons of God, b'nei ha-elohim in the Old Testament, a technical title. And in Job 38, 4 and 5, we saw that they were united and they all shouted for joy when God laid the foundation of the earth. And so the order of events is that you have eternity past, And then God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1.1. The angels were created prior to that. And the heavens, the space-time universe, I don't even think stars were there. Because stars aren't even mentioned until the fourth day. And there's nothing that requires that stars were there. It's just the space-time, it's like a huge stage. And the stage today contains stars. But there's nothing that necessitates that stars were in that initial stage. Who knows what they were? Something different. And that during that stage, God created the, God had created the angels, and it was at that time that Lucifer fell. He was the highest of all the angels, and he fell, and he led a third of the angels with him. Now that takes us into point two, that each angel was created with volition, The ability to choose for or against God. And at one point, one of the angels, the highest, most intelligent, most beautiful, most talented of all the angels revolted against God. And this is given, described in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And it was at this point that God executed. At some point after that, He gave all the angels the opportunity to make a decision. That was their decision for salvation, whether to follow Lucifer or not and then God judged the earth, and you have words like darkness on the face of the deep, and tohu vabohu, it was, uh, I can't even remember the English now, it was empty and void. And these are all terms that throughout Scripture indicate some level of judgment. So, there was a judgment on the earth, and then God began to restore or recreate the earth, and this he did in six literal 24-hour periods. And he creates man for a specific reason, and it is related to this prehistoric angelic conflict. So point number two, recognize that each angel was given volition, and that there was a division among the angels following, and one-third followed Lucifer in his revolt. Point number three, at that point Lucifer receives a new name. The Scripture names always reveal something about the essence, character, or role of the creature. So let's look at some of his names. Lucifer met uh, son of the morning, and that indicated that he was a creature of light, and it also by implication indicates that he was created holy. Now this brings in, just as a side point, just for those of you who like an intellectual conundrum. You only have two options with evil. Option number one is that evil is infinite. It's always there. It's an inherent part of the universe. And option number two is that evil is finite. It's bounded. It's limited. Now, pagan thought, human viewpoint thought, worldly thought, evolutionary thought, whether you go back to the ancient Babylonian myths of... um, Uh, ancient Babylon or ancient Greek myths or whatever. You always start off with chaos. But evil is part and parcel of the universe. It is always there. It is natural and normal. There is always evil. There is always suffering. There is always misery. There is always death. It was part of the gods as they fought and duked it out between them. Some of them die and their, their bodies are cut up. And then the gods make the stars and the earth from their from their carcasses. I mean it's bloody, it's gory, but but there's always death, there's always violence, there's always suffering. In other words, that's normal. It's infinite. It's part of reality and it never changes. And this is depressing. This is devastatingly discouraging that that ultimately the universe is horrible and ugly at its very core. There's no basis for goodness. I mean, there's all kinds of implications for that. And the unbeliever will always try to trap you on the horns of a dilemma. And that dilemma is the problem of evil. I heard somebody refer to it again last week that this is the greatest problem Christians face. Well, I think that shows the shallowness. That shows that that speaker has already bought into the human viewpoint assumptions of the antagonist. And the argument for the problem of evil is that you say that God is both good and omnipotent. Well, if God is good and He allows evil, then He can't be omnipotent because if He were really omnipotent, He wouldn't allow all this suffering. If God is omnipotent, then He can't really be good because if He were good, once again, He wouldn't allow evil. That's how the argument goes. But the presupposition there is that God is not omniscient so that He can arrange a plan in which He allows evil and sin to enter into his creation for a time in order to produce a higher good so that in that context he can demonstrate aspects of his character and his righteousness that he would not necessarily demonstrate to creatures in some other context. Now, we all feel, Christians feel put on the defensive at times because some intellectual comes along and you're witnessing and they say, well, you know, you really have a problem. How can God be good and omnipotent? And you can't solve the problem of evil. We can't solve the problem of evil, buddy. You've got a real problem with evil that you're saying that evil and death and sin and misery is endemic to the natural order of creation for infinity, for all eternity. This is the natural order of things. You really have a problem. See, we never turn the scales back on them because we just, oh, we get all flustered because we can't handle this intellectual argument. Well, they really don't have a solution because if they're... If, if they're right that evil is part and parcel to the universe and it's wrapped up with the basic structure and core reality for all infinity, then you don't have any basis for saying that, that Hitler was wrong or the Holocaust was wrong or that, that uh, any kind of famine that wipes out billions of people is wrong because you really don't even have a right to talk about good and bad or suffering or evil because if it's normative then what is, is, and it's good, bad, and you can't make any kind of qualitative judgment. And this is why intellectuals who perceive this tend to go for your Eastern religions like Buddhism and Hinduism because ultimately, you know, what's the Hindu statement? That a drop of water will drop after life, drops into an ocean and loses its identity and it just goes into nirvana uh, because... It, that's the only way to handle the, the terribly depressing reality of the horribleness of sin and evil is that I, I I just have to lose consciousness. That's why intellectuals often will get into drugs. They feel the core problem of despair of existence because if evil is normative and you don't have, you reject God, then then everything is is bleak and dark. And ultimately is destroyed and there's nothing that lasts. I mean, how can people live like that? Well, they don't live like that very well. They have to find something to cover it up. So only Christianity says that evil is finite, it is bounded. It came into existence through the volitional sin of, of an angel at some time in eternity past and then it entered into the human race through a volitional decision of man. And then at some time in the future, it will all be all evil will be vanquished and removed, and there'll be a new heavens and a new earth where there's no more sin, no more evil, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more pain for the old things who are passed away. So only Christianity offers a true solution to the problem of sin. Now Satan introduced this, and we see his titles. He is called Shatan looks like this in the Hebrew. Shatan. Shatan means adversary or one who is in opposition, the opposer. It is a legal term for a prosecutor. And he is prosecuting a case against God. Why? Because when God pronounced him guilty in eternity past and sentenced them to eternity in the lake of fire... Satan said, you haven't even given me a chance to prove what I can do. You've just automatically, arbitrarily assigned me to the lake of fire. You haven't given me a chance to prove what I can do, prove my own abilities. You just want to have exclusive command of the universe. And um, you need to give me a chance to do this and not only that, but how can you really be just and fair in all of this? So whatever we don't know exactly what he said, but the course of it was to impugn the basic character of God, His justice, His goodness, and His righteousness. Another title for Satan is Diabolos. In the Greek, Diabolos. D-I-A-B-O-L-O-S, which when it's transliterated over into English, ultimately becomes devil. Devil. And this is used 37 times in the New Testament. It means adversary, enemy, accuser, and its core meaning is to be a slanderer. And that describes Satan's basic method of operation of attacking and slandering God and anyone who has anything to do with God. This word is found in Matthew 4.10, Ephesians 4.27. Excuse me, Diabolos is found in Matthew 4.1, Shatan is found in... Matthew four ten, Ephesians four twenty seven, Revelation twelve nine, and Revelation twenty verse two. He is also called the evil one, John seventeen five and first John five eighteen to nineteen. The evil one, because that is his core character now, evil, John seventeen five. He is called the serpent in Genesis three one. He's the great red dragon in Revelation twelve three, seven and nine. He is called the Accuser of the Brethren in Revelation 12.10 and 1 John 2.1 and 2. And so the picture that we have is of a courtroom. Here is the Supreme Court of Heaven. And on the one hand you have the Lord Jesus Christ who is our defense attorney. And on the other hand you have Satan who is the Accuser of the Brethren. And every time we do anything, he is constantly bringing that before the Lord in accusation. And his goal is to destroy the witness of the believer. And so all of human history, because of Satan's original uh, appeal against God for his verdict, in eternity past, God instituted human history where he would create man a little lower than the angels. And it would be through this lowly creature that God would demonstrate the kind of character qualities that would be necessary in a creature to uh, rule and reign the universe. Satan had tried to do it through arrogance. But man is going to do it ultimately in the second Adam through the character quality of humility and obedience to God. And so ultimately it is... The second person of the Trinity who takes on flesh, becomes a man, goes to the cross, and by virtue of his humanity, he is going to demonstrate for all time and eternity the kinds of character that is necessary for those who are going to rule God's creation. And Satan is against this, and he's constantly accusing the brethren. Revelation 12.10 First 1 John 2.1 and 2. He's called the tempter. In Matthew 4.3, First Thessalonians 3.5, Acts 5.3, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5. He is the tempter. Why? Because he is the one who is putting thoughts and tempting man to disobey God. So here you are, you have a soul, and in your soul you have mentality and you have volition. And Satan is constantly baiting the trap to appeal to your volition to operate according to his plan and his agenda. One of the ways he does that apparently is to put thoughts in our mind. He cannot control us, but apparently he can put thoughts in our minds. We saw that in John 13 four5 this last week with Judas that in John 13:2 that Satan had put the thought into Judas's mind to betray him. You see it in Acts chapter, Seven, with Ananias and Sapphira that Satan put these thoughts into their minds so apparently in some way he can put thoughts into our minds and tempt us that way and I don't know if he does that directly or if he does it indirectly through the cosmic system which then appeals to our sin nature see the cosmic system provides the rationale for us to justify our sinful actions. So Satan is constantly shifting, moving things around in terms of whatever the dominant thinking is in the age in order to give people greater and greater justification for their sinful behavior and sinful actions. But he is the tempter. And he tempts in a variety of ways, and we'll see the method of that in Matthew 4, in the temptation of our Lord when He was in the wilderness. He's called the ruler of this world, Archon to Cosmu, John twelve thirty one, and in this title, once again, it emphasizes the fact that he is the ruler of the cosmic system. He is the one who lies behind it, and it is his intellect that is consistently moving people along according to the, these various rationales that he creates. He has, whereas the Lord has only one way. Satan can have a thousand different ways. Some of them are religious, some of them are irreligious, some of them are atheistic, some Hindu religions, Eastern religions, Mormonism, Christian cults. He can use just a whole panorama of different ideas in order to try to get people away from the Lord, but the Lord's way is only one. There is only one way. So he is called the ruler of the cosmic system, John 12:31, he's called the God of this world in the English translation, in 2 Corinthians 4:4. 4, 4. But the term there is not world; it's Ionos, Ionos, and Ionos has a temporal concept. This is the same word for eternity, and it means age, which related to the word for eternity, age, Ionos. And so this emphasizes that he has a temporal. A finite rule over the earth from the fall of Adam until the time that he is defeated first at Armageddon and then after the Gog and Magog Revolution when he is finally thrown into the lake of fire. He is the God of this age, literally. He's called the Prince of the Power of the Air in Ephesians two two. The Prince of the Power of the Air. He's called the Great Deceiver in Revelation twelve nine, reflecting his MO. He is the deceiver. He's also called Beelzebul in Matthew 12.24, which is a title for Satan as the chief of demons. Matthew 12 is the passage where Jesus had cast out a... He's confronted him and said, well, you just did that by the power of Beelzebul. And that is the passage where Jesus warns them about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He had cast out the demon in the power of God, the Holy Spirit. And they were saying that, no, no, that was really the power of, of Satan. You're just doing it in Satan's power. And Jesus' point was, in terms of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is that if you are going to accuse uh, Jesus Christ of, and reject Him and accuse Him of uh, doing His work, by the power of, this, of, of Satan, then that is uh, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit that, of course, is the one who does it. And that is, of course, a limited sin. As an unforgivable sin, it revealed the hardness of the Pharisees' heart, their rejection of Christ as Messiah, and it was the sin that is restricted in time to only during the Incarnation. No one else can commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit can't happen because you have to have the incarnate Jesus in your presence performing miracles to be able to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. That's what's required. So none of us can commit that sin. The only unforgivable sin is the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ on the cross. Christ paid the penalty for every other sin. And that's what John 3.18 is saying, that he who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who what? He who believeth not is condemned already. The only condition there is belief. So, if you trust Christ as your Savior, then you have eternal life, and sin is no longer the issue, and you don't have to worry about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. You can never lose your salvation. Point number four. Satan then appealed after the fall to the angels, and he led one-third in revolt against God, Revelation 12.4, which states, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven. The context is talking about Satan's fall from heaven in the middle of the tribulation when he's cast out, and of course a third of the angels go with him. They're referred to as stars of heaven. Revelation 12.4 Point number five, in eternity past, God convened a trial in heaven, judged them guilty, sentenced them to eternity in the lake of fire. Matthew 25.41 And Revelation 20.10. Now the point is that God, that Matthew 25.41 says that the lake of fire has been prepared in the past. It's already prepared for the angel, I mean for the devil and his angels. Now if it was prepared in eternity past for them, for their judgment, eternal capital punishment, then why aren't they there? Because God halted the process to resolve Satan's appeal. Satan appealed the verdict, God, how can You be just in doing this? You haven't given me a chance to show what I can do, so give me that opportunity. So God postponed judgment and inserted all of human history as a training aid to the angels to show them His justice, His righteousness, and to reveal to all of the angels and to all creatures for all time and eternity that the only way to have success in anything is through complete submission to the authority of God the Father. This is point number six. Although condemned, Satan apparently entered an appeal, challenged the justice and fairness of God, and so God granted that appeal, and that is the basis... An explanation for human history. Point number eight. There are two dangers in talking about demons. The first is excessive rationalism. Excessive rationalism. In rationalism, we tend to only believe the things that make sense to us, that we can justify by, on the basis of our own reason. And this always limits the power of Satan... Or it denies the reality of Satan, that Satan in the Bible is not really a person, it's just a force, it's just descriptive of evil. Uh, And the other extreme or danger is mysticism. And in mysticism, you always end up in some sort of dualism, which blames all the problems of life on Satan and the demon. And you see that a lot today. You know, Flip Wilson made it so popular back in the 70s. The devil made me do it. The devil made me... And that's exactly what so many churches are doing these so-called deliverance ministries is the reason you you. we're going to come forward. You have a problem with weight. Well, we're just going to cast out the demon of gluttony. And we're going to cast out the demon of anger. And instead of justifying the fact or recognizing the fact that you as a believer have volition and you are making all these decisions from your own volition... The paganism always tries to go for victimization. Human viewpoint thinking says, if evil is natural, then my evil is not my fault. You see where that comes from? If evil is natural and normal to the created order, it's not my fault I make bad decisions it's not my fault I'm angry it's not my fault I'm a glutton it's not my fault I'm an alcoholic or a drug abuser it's somebody else's fault I'm a victim and this has been man's natural explanation of sin and evil since the fall what did the what did the man say it's not my fault it's the woman you know I'm a victim of this this creature you made God of course the implication there is it's your fault because you made her and then the woman comes along and says, well, no, 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 it's not my fault. It's this serpent's fault. So we're, we're always using victimization to, uh, transfer responsibility to some other aspect of nature. Because what we're saying is that it's not the result of volition, of human volition. It's natural to the order of things. It's part of nature. It's part of creation. So, so I just can't avoid it. It's not my responsibility, so don't hold me accountable. So we have to watch out for mysticism and rationalism, and all of which always buys into basic human viewpoint assumptions that God really didn't create. Everything goes back to creation, folks. If you don't take Genesis 1-11 to seriously and literally, then throw out the rest of the Bible and go somewhere else. Genesis 1-11 through must be taken literally because that and that alone solves the problems of the universe. Conclusion. We are engaged, therefore, as key players in this cosmic war. There is a war going on throughout all of the universe between the rebellious angels called demons and Satan and against God and the holy angels. And we are the test case. We are the experiment. We are the football team down on the field. We are playing out the drama, and they are seeking to influence the whole thing uh, so to get their way. So Satan has a strategy, and that takes us into the next doctrine, which we'll just get started on tonight. Satan's strategy, point number one. Satan is a master counterfeiter. Satan is the master counterfeiter. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen through 15 Paul is dealing with false teachers in this passage, and he says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. See, Satan doesn't unmask himself. He is a masquerader. This is what verse 14 states. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. These people who have visions and see angels, and they're creatures of light... Trust me, they're not seeing God's holy angels. They don't appear during this age. They're, They're seeing demons masquerading as angels of light. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. See, Satan would rather masquerade and promote morality because that is much more destructive than immorality. Remember, Satan wants to rule and bring order to the cosmos, to the creation. He wants to try to bring peace and stability to everything. So he would rather promote righteousness and morality than unrighteousness and immorality. So his servants, the demons, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, but their end shall be according to their deeds. Point number two, Satan counterfeits the truth a number of different ways. He has counterfeit doctrine. In 1 Timothy 4.1, he has several systems of counterfeit doctrine. He has counterfeit teachers and prophets. There are probably, we would be amazed to see how many men there are in pulpits of churches who are not believers and who are there to promote false doctrine under the sponsorship of Satan and the demons. This is our very, counterfeit doctrine is in 1 Timothy 4.1, Doctrines of Demons. Counterfeit teachers and prophets, 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15. He sponsors a counterfeit communion table. That's in 1 Corinthians 10, 20 to 21. He has a false system of communion. He offers a counterfeit righteousness which is based on legalism and morality. Matthew 19, 16 through 26. A counterfeit system of righteousness which is based on legalism, and morality Matthew 19 16 to 26 he promotes a counterfeit gospel a false gospel that includes works very subtle forms of a works gospel make Jesus Christ lord of your life believe and be baptized believe and join the church believe and do good 2 Corinthians 11:3 through 4 he gives a counterfeit gospel and this is one of the ways he obscures the truth of the gospel, and blinds unbelievers to the truth of the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. And he offers a counterfeit spirituality, which is designed to get believers off track, thinking that somehow they're impressing God by their own works, Galatians 3, 2-3. And he also performs counterfeit signs, wonders, and miracles, Second Thessalonians 2, 8-10. This is one of the greatest things in our age for deceiving believers is thinking that there are, that's signs and wonders, speaking in tongues, miracles, healings, all of these things somehow, just because they happen, it must be from God. I've had pastors tell me that. Well it happened it must be from God. Well let's look at your doctrine. Let's look at the doctrine now is this biblical? Let's go back and look at the Shakers. Let's assume for the sake of argument that the Shakers really did speak in tongues. Okay, let's look at their doctrine. Okay, they they believe in a a reincarnation. They believe in spiritism, that you can contact the dead, necromancy. They're doing all these things. That's not biblical. So, why would God give miracles to this group to authenticate false doctrine? And you can go through group after group after group. Uh, You can find that they speak in tongues. You look at the Jesus-only Pentecostals. Most of you probably don't even know who I'm talking about. Jesus-only Pentecostals. Uh, one-third of all formerly, I mean, denominational-oriented Pentecostals belong to, I think it's the American Pentecostal, National Pentecostal Church, one of them. Anyway, it's it's Jesus-only. They deny the Trinity. They are uh, basically uh, monarchists, modalists, in the old traditional term. They, they reject any concept of the Trinity, three persons in one God. And why would God give them the gift of tongues to authenticate such a heresy? And yet, over and over again, people want to go to this group and that group in church history and say, well, they spoke in tongues. No, they didn't. First of all, it's highly doubtful that anybody spoke in tongues up until the alleged speaking in tongues, and it was just alleged at the turn of the century. But secondly, why would God authenticate all of this heresy by signs and wonders and miracles? Satan is the one who promotes a counterfeit system of signs, wonders, and miracles. Point number three, his primary method of distracting and blinding people to the truth is through false systems of thinking called cosmic thinking. The term that is used is cosmos cosmos diabolicus, the devil's cosmic system, cosmos diabolicus. As the promoter of these systems, he is called the ruler of this world, the ruler of this cosmos. And point number four, as a ruler, he is a failure. He is a failure. One of the best quotes on this, which we'll close with tonight, comes from Lewis Berry Chafer in his second volume of his Systematic Theology. Lewis Berry Chafer, this is so perceptive, most people miss this point, and it is so perceptive. He says, next to the lie itself, the greatest delusion Satan imposes, it reaches to all the unsaved and to a large proportion of Christians. The greatest delusion Satan imposes is the supposition that only such things as society considers evil could originate with the devil. If indeed there be any devil to originate anything. It is not the reason of man, but the Revelation of God, which points out that governments, morals, education, art, commercialism, vast enterprises and organizations, and much of religious activity are included in the cosmos diabolicus. Let me read that again. He says, it is not the reason of man. See, man can't get to any understanding of truth about the devil and Satan on the basis of his experience or his reason. And that's the whole problem with 99% of the stuff that's being taught today is spiritual warfare, is it's based on either rationalism or empiricism, and it is not based on the Word of God. I remember when Tommy and I had our book come out, one reviewer made the comment. He said, this is the only book in publication that honestly deals with what the Scripture says about angels and demons, and doesn't major in experience. And at the time, I knew of over 50 books in publication on spiritual warfare. And yet, this reviewer stated that we were the only book in publication that based its views on what the Bible said and not experience. Chafer writes, It is not the reason of man, but the revelation of God, which points out that governments, morals, education, art, commercialism, vast enterprises and organizations, and much of religious activity are included in the cosmos diabolicus. That is, the system which Satan has constructed includes all the good which he can incorporate into it and be consistent in the thing he aims to accomplish. In other words, it's about 95% right. It's the 5% wrong that's so destructive. Then he adds, A serious question arises whether the presence of gross evil in the world is due to Satan's intention to have it so. Or whether it indicates Satan's inability to execute all he has designed. Let me read that again. That's a powerful statement. A serious question arises whether the presence of gross evil in the world is due to Satan's intention to have it so, or whether it indicates Satan's inability to execute all he has designed. See, what Schaefer is saying is that all this gross evil in the world, that's not because of Satan. He doesn't want all that, he doesn't want wars, he wants unity. He wants peace. He wants to show God that he can really rule the human race successfully. But he's got 3 billion, six what is it, six billion now, six billion people with their own idea of how things ought to be running around on the planet, and he can't control all of us. See, that's why I have a real problem saying that these people like Hitler and all these other evil leaders were demon-possessed. See, Satan wants to promote good. He wants harmony. He wants to show that he can rule this place. And what Schaeffer suggests is the presence of gross evil isn't really Satan's intention, but it indicates Satan's inability to execute his plan. The probability is great that Satan has led him to undertake, Satan's ambition has led him to undertake more than any creature could ever administer. Revelation declares that the whole cosmos system must be annihilated, not its evil alone, but all that is in it, both good and bad. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for the revelation of your word because it helps us to understand the real dynamics that are going on in the spiritual dimension beyond our empirical senses, beyond the ability of our native reason to, to learn about. Father, we realize that we are part of a great cosmic conflict, the angelic conflict and that this spiritual warfare rages around us, and as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are the focal point, and that Satan is and his demons and the entire cosmic system is arrayed against us to destroy our witness and our testimony in this trial against him. And, Father, we realize that the battle is the Lord's, that our responsibility is not to engage Satan in warfare, not to go out and try to... Uh, uh, rebuke the devil or try to condemn the devil or control the devil or bind the devil our responsibility is to resist the devil which is a defensive term and to let you handle what is going on in the spiritual realm Father we pray that you would challenge us with these things and that we, our, our, our devotion to you our understanding of scripture and our motivation would be strengthened by understanding the vital role that we play as witnesses in this angelic conflict. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.